Or go ahead, start. Thank you. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are in Proverbs chapter 5. Turn there as we get started. We'll open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We're thankful, Father, for your faithfulness to lead us into the truth. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Proverbs chapter 5. We've uh, spent about three weeks now looking at harlots, and uh, I think we've done about everything we're going to do there. Um, But we need to understand the damage. We need to understand the snare for what it is and the damage that gets done in this kind of activity. Remember, it's not just physical activity, it's spiritual activity. And the damage is to the body and the damage is to the soul. And ultimately, the the consequences apply to the land itself. We were discussing defilement during the pastoral training session this morning with Lewis and Dan and and, uh, the consequences of certain sins, not every sin, but certain sins, defile or pollute the very land that these inhabitants reside in. And so if, uh, if Amorites are particularly lustful and then their activity defiles the land, it will spew them out. And uh, this is what we see happening in the, among the Canaanite peoples and why the, uh, all the ites were uh, destroyed in Joshua's conquest. The Perizzites and the Hittites and all these other ites that, uh, not Hittites, but all the ites of the conquest that, uh, that Joshua conquered. In any event, as we're looking at Proverbs chapter 5, we understand this is the second of five discourses contained in the uh, parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. Second of five fornication discourses. Five discourses on fornication, on zana, the, the verb zana, that uh, describes all of the the, the general term that describes sex outside of marriage is zana. That uh, married, the marriage bed is designed for husband and wife in marriage, and anything that is outside of that is zana. So the fornication discourses in the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. This is the second of the five. The first one was a short one in chapter two. The last one is also a short one in chapter nine. So if you want to just make a list of these five discourses, you would start with chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. It's a short little discourse. The last one is also short in chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. The middle ones are the longest, starting here in chapter 5, verses 3 through 23. That's 21 verses worth of material related to uh, this activity. Not only presenting the bad side of things, not only presenting uh, the, the, the thou shalt nots and the, and the stay away froms and things like that, but also the positive side of things. Scripture is, just not, uh, scripture is not describing sex as a bad thing. Scripture is describing fornication as a bad thing and describing sex as a good thing within the boundaries of marriage. And so I think next week we will likely be in verses 15 through 19 and where drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Why do we have so many dysfunctional sex lives? It's because they're violating the scriptures. God's plan for blessing includes sexual health between a husband and wife in marriage. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Somebody the other day was trying to tell me that breasts aren't sexual, and they were trying to defend it in kind of a natural thing. And, and, and I, I get what they were doing, supporting breastfeeding and, and the feeding of an infant. And Okay, I get that. Yes, they are for that purpose, in addition to other purposes. And I think Scripture's on my side as I look at verse 19 there. All right. Uh, let her breast satisfy you at all times, be exhilarated always with her love. So 15 through 19 is the positive description of a husband and wife and the blessings that are provided within the confines and boundaries, the safe boundaries of marriage, not just streams of water in the streets. All right. 
Um, Likewise, Proverbs chapter 6 is fairly lengthy, verses 24 through 35. Proverbs chapter 7 is very lengthy in verses 5 through 27. In each of these, I think we see uh, dramas. I think we see uh, not only the principles of wisdom being portrayed, but then the dramatization of those principles being portrayed with um, Knucklehead and his, uh, his problem in going to the wrong part of town and the trouble that he's looking for every time that he's in that wrong part of town. So that's where we're going to be going in these early chapters here of Proverbs. Under point two, Proverbs warns repeatedly against the seductress, and feel free to turn it around to the masculine gender, as the case may be. Uh, all of the vocabulary is in the feminine gender by virtue of uh, David and Solomon, uh, David and Bathsheba warning their sons. Likewise, Solomon, writing from a masculine perspective, warning his sons related to the strange women, uh, but it's very applicable in, in the reverse order. We can warn our daughters about the strange men and the foreign men and the fornicators and the adulterers and all the vocabulary there. Subpoints A through G that break down all the vocabulary there. Remember, I guess the final thing we'll talk about on this is we don't want to lose track of the expressions. Fornication is the general term. Adultery is precise. Adultery is specific. Adultery refers to the violation of the marriage covenant. All right? And um, so it's different than fornication. And I used to think of it as a subset, right? And that's wrong. It's not a subset. If you think of fornication as the general term, there are several subsets within fornication that would include um, uh, premarital sex, it would include uh, homosexuality, it includes bestiality, it includes incest, it includes um, anything under the sun that would be a subset of fornication. Okay, I, I, I corrected myself in study and I've learned to not put adultery in that category. Adultery is not a subset uh, because all those terrible things I just mentioned could be what happens that violates a marriage covenant. No, adultery is not a subset. Adultery is an additional charge above and beyond the fornication charge. Okay, It's not a subcategory of fornication. It is above and beyond the, uh, the fornication charge. Anyway, Hebrew on that is ana and na'af. The Greek on that is pornuo and moikeo, and, uh, or moikuo, and uh, the aspects there. All right. Her lips and palate are sweet and smooth until they become bitter and sharp. That was point three we talked about a week ago. Uh, that it's uh, a lot of fun at the time, tastes great, but then the aftertaste, the, the indigestion that comes in. That uh, it's uh, the nature of this particular sin where the damage may not be felt immediately. That, uh, but it's down the road, all right? It's down the road that it becomes clear that the activity has produced consequences, and those consequences may be lifelong consequences, depending on which consequences the father chooses to assign. So uh, sweet and smooth until they become bitter and sharp. Her feet have only one destination unless the grace of God delivers her from that path. And it does take a, a, the, the grace of God to get, I think in a lot of these cases, folks that have been on that path for any length of time, it becomes enslaving Sexual addictions become enslaving. The homosexual is enslaved to a mindset. Uh, the promiscuous person is, uh, is enslaved to a mindset. And it becomes unfortunate. What does it take to deliver from that mindset? The grace of God. Absolutely the grace of God. In, uh, in the way that this uh, has power over a person. All right? And uh, I could show you examples of men that thought that, you know, thought that getting saved was going to cure their homosexuality. Well, guess what? They got saved and found out they still had sin temptations in the homosexuality they were enslaved to before they were believers. Different aspects there. No, but the grace of God can get you off that path. And we talked about Rahab and others that uh, were rescued from that path. Point five, and the bulk of our time last week was spent here. What is our life purpose? What is the path of life? Why are we here? The harlot has no perspective for her life purpose and she remains oblivious to her own instability. The harlot has no perspective for her life purpose and she remains oblivious to her own instability. 
as we read in Proverbs 5, 6. She does not ponder the path of life. Why think about it? (laughs) You know, why think about it? If I think about it, I'll just get depressed. So quit thinking about it. Just have fun. All right, why think about it? You know, if I think about the drugs I'm doing, then I realize this is pretty destructive. So don't think about it. Just take the drugs and feel good. You know, if I think about the, the, the beds I'm hopping in and out of, well, it makes me depressed. I don't want to think about it. But I'm going to keep doing it. All right? That's the slavery. That's the insanity of this instable life, unstable life. Her instability is what she's oblivious to. Does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. And we spent some time talking about the path of life. It's called the upward way. We sing about it, and I'm pressing on the upward way. What is that upward way? Right? The fact is, is we're all on a path. And I hate the fact that the, the secular-minded, cosmic-minded people of this world have stolen our vocabulary. We are on a path, the upward path. And they like to use the language of path to say, well, you know, we're all on a journey, we're all on a path, and, and we'll all get to the same place eventually. There's many paths to get there, and it's a lie from the pit of hell. Because the Bible describes two paths, not many, two. The path to heaven and the path to hell. And one of those is paved with good intentions, not a Bible verse, but I accept it as a, as a maxim or a proverb in any event. We're on the upward way. We're on God's path. It's called the straight and narrow. It's not the broad path that leads to destruction. We should be uh, on God's path. We're running with endurance the race that's set before us, not just picking out whatever path we want to choose. It is the upward way. Ultimately speaking, the end of this path is the Bema seat, standing before my Creator, my Redeemer, my Savior, and giving account for everything I've done on this earth. That's the path I'm on. Now, you understand why she doesn't want to ponder that, okay? You understand when I'm carnal, why I don't want to ponder that. The last thing I want to think about is standing before my Creator, Redeemer, Savior and giving an account for why I'm defying Him today and whatever particular sin I'm choosing to do. So I don't want to think about that. I just want to do the sin, okay? Don't think about it, do it. If it feels good, do it, right? That's the message of this cosmos, so it's called the upward way in Proverbs fifteen twenty four, And there are positional applications, experiential applications, and then ultimate applications. We can think of this path in the same three ways that we think about being saved, right? Saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin, saved from the, the presence of sin. We can think of this upward path in the same terminology, the path of life. And there's the gate we enter into when we receive eternal life at the moment of our salvation. There's the positional component of the path of life. You might think of that as the starting block to this path of life. But then there's the experiential basis and how many Christians are saved, but they're off the path. Once they are saved, they're, they're back in the path of darkness again. So there's the experiential applications as far as walking the, the straight and narrow. And then there's the ultimate destination when the veil is parted and we pass through those pearly gates. Okay, And I don't believe it's St. Peter there waiting to greet us and quiz us and make sure we, uh, we belong or whatever. If St. Peter, I tell you, when I get to the pearly gates, if St. Peter dares to ask me, you know, so, those jokes bug me, right? You know, as if when, when St. Peter says, why should I let you in? You know, what answer do you give him? That just, that bugs me to death. You know, I'm going to punch him in the nose if if St. Peter dares to say, what business do you have being here, okay? I got all the business you have, Peter. Get out of my way. This is, uh, it's, it's, okay, I'm probably more sensitive than I ought to be for that, but it just bugs me to death. They, they, They try to turn it into a kind of a humor thing, I suppose. This is the path of life. And in instability, of course, the unbeliever never thinks about it, but the carnal believer rarely thinks about it. And that's what you deal with with unstable people. What what are they thinking about? Where are they dwelling? They're not dwelling in the Word of God. They're dwelling in the world. They're dwelling in the cosmos. And their thinking reflects that. Their attitude reflects that. The unstable and their instability make for a terrible danger to those that are on the path of life. And this is what we have to guard against. Absolutely have to guard against. Now... Some cautions there. Let me just pick up here, because I know this is what we dealt with a week ago, and I want to move on to main point six. But just to refresh our thinking on what these verses say and what these verses don't say, 
um, we don't deal with them as enemies, okay? And I should probably add 2 Thessalonians to this. It's not on the screen, but in addition to 2 Timothy 3.6, to James 1.6 and 8, to 2 Peter 2.14, and 2 Peter 3.16, those are verses that talk about the unstable or the instability, different things there. Let me add to that list 2 Thessalonians and, and grab a, um, a principle here. Chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 3. Good luck finding a chapter 4 in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I think the principle is valid. We can, it's not unstable or undisciplined, but it's, it's, oh, it's undisciplined. There it is, verse 11. And so in talking about uh, a terrible example, starting in verse 6, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you have received from us. So there are believers who will contribute to your spiritual stability, and there are believers that will damage your spiritual stability because they're so unstable. And you've got you to gotta have a distance there. You've got to be protected from that. Keep away. Verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. So there's positive examples you want to emulate. There's terrible examples you want to stay away from. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we don't have a right to do this. It goes on. Obviously there's apostolic privilege that, that ought to be supported. The, the Word of God ought to be supported. But we did this as a model, offering ourselves as a model for you that you would follow our example. That's the hard-working example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. That's tough language, but it's true. If you just if you reward laziness, you're going to get more laziness. Hunger is a powerful motivation. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. And this, I think, goes along with the instability of what we see in 2 Timothy 3, 6, James 1, 6 and 8, 2 Peter 2, 14 and 3, 16. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion, eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And here's, the, here's what it comes down to. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter. So they, it's just like the, the Matthew 18 church discipline process. There's going to be warning opportunities. There's going to be um, you know, steps that you go through. But eventually it reaches a point where, look, this is just unrepentant. It's not going to change. It's not going to stop. Take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. It is for the, it's a loving application. You just walk away and say, I can't associate with this. I cannot be identified with this. I cannot be despoiled by this. I cannot be damaged. My soul cannot be damaged by your instability. And the purpose is, is again, the repentance. The same thing in Matthew 18. Yet, the most important, that's why I'm taking the time here to show verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Admonish him as a brother. And that's what we find in all these passages. In 2 Timothy 2 and 2 Timothy 3, the goal is to rescue someone that's been held captive by Satan. You're, with gentleness, you're correcting those who are in opposition, but you're doing so without getting spoiled yourself. Looking to yourself, lest you too be defiled. Right? All right, so we, we're mindful of the danger and we must separate ourselves as necessary because of the danger. And yet, they're not the enemy. And if we can bring them back, we want to bring them back. But we want to bring them back in the truth. We're not going to bring them back so long as they're engaged in what they're engaged in. They have no interest in coming back. They're engaged in that, all right? I'm separating. I'm not having a part of that. Hopefully we understand the difference. Now, let's go back to Proverbs 5 now and let's talk about the far and near. Proverbs chapter 5, far and near. The far, this is point 6 in your outline. The far and near admonition is designed to prevent almost utter ruin. Almost utter 
ruin. And I like that language. Almost utter. Okay? Near total. Near total. Almost utter. Verses 7 through 14 now. You know, you would think this whole thing could end at verse 6. And that says it all, doesn't it? All right, I get it. Pay attention to wisdom. Uh, look out for the adulteress. And if, if we just dropped it at 3 through 6, hasn't, isn't that enough? That's comparable to the, the first uh, exhortation in chapter 2. Just give me a paragraph. Okay, great. I'll, I'll obey it. No, you won't obey it. Okay, even though it's been given to you the first time in chapter 2, it's been given to you the second time now in chapter 5. Those were short um, admonishments, but now we have a much longer one that actually spells it out. And uh, spells it out pretty uh, descriptively, I I might say. It involves anguish. It involves groaning. It involves flesh and body consumed in verse 11, that doesn't sound fun. Okay, it's a, it, is a, it is an ugly, ugly end of life. And if you've ever seen anybody die an ugly, ugly end of life, then you want to learn from that example and not live it yourself, right? Part of the uh, um, duties in the sheriff's department, we had to, uh, there were some inmates that, that, that died and they were terminal and, and they would end up in the hospital instead of the jail uh, to receive their hospice treatment. And uh, drug abusers and whatever else, um, heroin is the worst addiction I've ever seen anybody come off of. Absolutely horrible. Uh, and cirrhosis, watching uh, liver failure and watching the, the death of cirrhosis. Just uh, a, an absolute ugly, and, and it'd be kind of, I mean, I wouldn't want my children to see that with their own eyes, but if they did see it with their own eyes, they would never forget it. It would make it. It would have an impact. And so, short of actually seeing it with your own eyes, uh, passages like this can hopefully describe it in uh, in such a way. All right, because there is near utter, almost total. Verse fourteen. I was almost. That's the nearness in utter ruin. That's the totality. Almost utter, near total. If you think about every component of your life that can be wrecked, it does get wrecked. Your professional life, your marriage life, your family life, your children life, your, I mean, think about every possible life that can get wrecked. It does get wrecked. And about the only thing that's left is the sin and the death. If you're that, if you're one step short of it, that's how close you are. In the midst of the assembly and congregation. All right, and the, the damage that it does to the, uh, the one relationship that's eternal, okay? If you think about it, everything else is temporal, the work, you, the, your, your coworkers, your classmates, your peers, your neighbors, you know, you have different neighbors here and there. Your, uh, even marriage is temporal because it's till death us do part. Um, but think about it. Your relationship with parents, well, they're going to die or you're going to die or something. Relationship with your children, again, you're going to die, they're going to die, something. But what's eternal? The congregation, the assembly, the, the body of the redeemed. In our case, it's even worse than this. The body of the redeemed, which is the royal family of God in the church age. Damage those relationships, huh? Understand there are consequences in this. So almost an utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. That's where this passage is heading. That's where this passage is heading. For her, well, she's headed to death. But where are you headed when you participate with her? And it's, uh, there's a lot of consequences here. So let's take a look at it. Verse 7, Now then, my sons, it switches to plural for this, Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. So there's the far and there's the near. And he includes them both. If your way is far and not near then uh, you're, you're obedient to this verse. This is the far and near admonition. So uh, don't even go near. Don't play with it. Don't think about it. Or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. What is your vigor? We'll talk about that. And your years. 
and strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I have hated instruction. Okay, It's not just body, it's soul as well. You're into the realms of hate at this point. My heart spurned reproof. The damage done to your innermost being, the very heart as the core of your soul and your spirit. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. You have only yourself to blame because people were telling you not to do that. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. All right, that's what we got to deal with. What are we looking at here? Proximity is a danger, so why risk it? Proximity is a danger, so why risk it? Keep your way far, do not go near. (laughs) You're using the opposite uh, prepositions simultaneously in tandem to make the point twice. That's like in um, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, make your request known to God, right? This is a, it's a beautiful dialectic, if that's the right term. It's a beautiful tandem of expressions using them um, together, far and near at the same time. Keep your way far, do not go near. It's because proximity is a danger, so why risk it? If you're not in that part of town, you won't even have the temptation. Okay. If you know that you are an alcoholic, then perhaps your employment as a bartender is not the smartest uh, career decision you could make. Other applications there. All right. You've got a gambling addiction. I met a man over the weekend that had decades of gambling problems and got saved and, and got uh, um, his mind renewed and is broken free from, from that. Now he's an evangelist doing prison ministry and been doing that for 15 years. So uh, I've kind of enjoyed meeting him. Um, but, but that's a guy that knows what his areas of weakness are, knows what his sin, soul damage is that the sin has done, and who knows the kind of places he has no business going in or going anywhere near. That's, that's just a proximity danger. Why play with it? And if you want to play with fire, why do you want to play with fire? Why do you want to be so close? All right? And uh, this is the question that, that would get asked. And, um, you know, you get asked certain questions in teen class, for example. And this goes back years and years, not anybody presently in teen class, but it, you get, well, you know, like in terms of, you know, and they want to know it's legitimate. If, if, if they're dating, you know, um, how far is too far? You know, is it okay to hold hands? Is it okay to kiss? Is it okay to hug? I mean, you know, where's the line? Where's the line? I think, okay, it's good to know that there is a line, but how close do you want to get? Why do you want to get, why do you want the line to be further on that side and not so far on this side? What what is your motivation for pushing it that far? (laughs) As if it's not clearly obvious why your motivation is pushing it that far, but okay. Say it out loud, why don't you? You're asking the question, tell me. Why do you want the line to be pushed that far? And then ask, then rephrase the question and say, um, how, how unholy can I be before God says I'm not holy anymore? <laughs> All right. So, are, are you really asking what's the minimum amount of holiness I can get away with but that God will say, okay, you're holy? What are we, why, are we, why are we trying to paint a fuzzy line there? Because when I do, when I do, I'm playing with fire. When I do, I'm playing with fire. And it's scary. We have good kids here, of course, but man, some of the things they talk about with their classmates and things, oh my goodness. All right. Proximity is a danger, so why risk it? Fornication is a substantial giveaway. Fornication is a substantial giveaway. And I call it a giveaway because 
Proverbs is calling it a giveaway in verses 9 and 10. And if, if, if you ever get bothered by giveaway programs, right, government giveaway programs or any of their kind of giveaway programs or whatever, sometimes uh, churches employ giveaway programs as a means of bribing people to come and visit or whatever, and, and we'll have a giveaway program and, and uh, so forth. I find it sad because it's always unnecessary. You know, if somebody wants to give something volitionally as a free will grace offering, that's one thing. Um, but if it's if it's simply a giveaway program with ulterior motives, that's a problem because that's not a giveaway. That's a perversion of grace. That's not grace. And in the case of these giveaways, they're things that should not be given away because they belong to somebody else. And that's always the tragedy of most of the government giveaways is they're giving away stuff that belongs to somebody else <laughs> when it comes down to comes down to redistribution. All right, don't get me going on that. Let's, uh, why sully myself with politics when I can just talk about sex all morning? All right. (laughs) Again, proximity is a problem. Keep your way far from her. The further apart you are, the less trouble you can get into. I, I recommend every young man, I, you know, Imitate what Sharon and I did. We got engaged and then got 10,000 miles apart. <laughs> Desert storm came up. I went to Saudi Arabia and we had six months of, of writing letters. Okay, And that's before email and before, I think I had two phone calls in those six months. So it was all letters, pen on paper. And uh, distance helps. Distance helps because you put thoughts together into words and you put words on paper and you communicate and you you uh, you exchange values and, and you learn things and and um, you don't have the the distractions of of closeness the distractions of proximity and whatever and yeah it smells nice but it's different than than um, other smells all right all right let me get on to this verse proximity is a problem proximity is a problem. And here's the consequences. If you play with it, if you get too close, you will fail. It's going to happen. It may not be today, maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's the next day. But the longer you play with it, you're simply making inevitable the fall. And here's what you're going to do. You will give, here's the giveaway, you will give your vigor to others. And that's not who's entitled to your vigor. You will give your years to the cruel one. That's not who owns your years. That's not why he's given you your years. It's a second giveaway. Third giveaway. Strangers will be filled with your strength. That's not for them. That's for you. What is your strength? And why did God give you your strength? And what does he intend for you to do with the strength that he gave you? Not to give it to her in this context. There's a purpose for your strength. And it's uh, given in verses 15 through 19, as we already read. Um, The final giveaway. Your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. There's the fourth giveaway. Your hard-earned goods. What is that about? You You didn't build that. Oh, I'm going political again. Your hard-earned goods. When you accumulate wealth, it is a reflection of what? Your service on behalf of God in working. At least that's the design. I realize it's not always the case these days. But this is the biblical pattern. Your strength, your hard-earned goods. It's yours. And uh, thou shalt not steal is a law for a reason. It's because your hard-earned goods are your hard-earned goods. They are God's blessing to you in the fruit of your obedience to Him. In the work assignment, the Adamic work assignment, why He gave you a helpmate. She is to bless you in your hard-earned goods. All right, and your hard-earned goods support her, support her children, support, in any event, 
your hard-earned goods. And so we have the man's role, we have the woman's role, we have the function of marriage, we have the operation of family, whereby the next generation is trained in this whole process so they can leave father and mother and cleave to one another and repeat it to the next generation, repeat it to the next generation. All right, so here's the giveaway. Four different expressions that talk about the unnecessary giving away. The unnecessary giving away. Your vigor, your years, your strength, and your hard-earned goods. So, what is the vigor? So, point one. Your vigor to others. The man's vigor. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew could reference majesty and splendor, depending on the context for... uh, how the, how the adjective is used, or how the noun is used. Uh, but majesty or splendor, the man's vigor, his um, passions, his attachments, his love, his um, energy, okay, his vitality, sexual and otherwise. Not just sexual, by the way. I mean, we want to start with that because it's a sexual passage, but it's more than that. It's more than that. But yes, even his sexual vigor, his sexual vitality belongs to his wife. It is his duty to her. He is her provision. God has designed him to meet her physical sexual needs. And that's why 1 Corinthians 7.3 says what it says. His vigor belongs to her. 1 Corinthians 7. And notice this is a marriage passage. They call it a divorce passage. Well, it's, uh, it reaches the divorce topic later, but it starts as a marriage passage. It starts as a single passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, concerning the things about which you wrote. And we don't have a copy of their letter, so we don't know what they were asking, but we can tell based on how he answers that they had a question about um, celibacy. And it's a great follow-up to chapter 6, where they were involved in harlotry. All right, chapter 7, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. All right, that's the will of God. If you are a man... Notice, not a husband. We don't get to the husband until verse (laughs) 3. Okay? So this man we're talking about in verse 1 is the single man. Is the single man. All right, so it is good. Celibacy is good. But it's not good for the man to be alone. And so we combine the, the not good statement from Genesis with the good statement here from Corinthians, and we understand. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. If you are not married, no sex. But because of fornication, fornication's plural, each man is to have his own wife. So there it is. And that excludes polygamy. It doesn't say, you know, assemble a harem. <laughs> Gather a collection of wives. All right. Each man is to have his own wife, each one. And each woman is to have her own husband and notice the ownership of this again it's one one per one each man one wife each woman one husband why is it so complicated i'm not even a supreme court justice and i can understand this all right now this is the design this is the design now the husband must it's a have to Fulfill his duty. That's the vigor. It doesn't belong to another woman or multiple women or a long string of 15 or 20 women until you finally settle down and, and uh, whatever gas is left in the tank, I guess that's, that's what you give to, to her and decide to, to finally settle down and, and uh, enter into the, the, the humdrum monotony of, of marriage. Okay. 
But see, there's the attitude. That is the culture today. Have fun. Have all your fun. Whatever. In your teens. In your 20s. In your 30s. You know. And then uh, after, uh, after your party years, then you just kind of look around and try to uh, make the, make the, get the best deal you can before it's too late. All right? And we've got a whole culture that's sadly engaged in this. Absolutely engaged. They're viewing the marriage market like a, like a used car dealership or something. Trying to find something with low mileage while they themselves have high mileage. You know, kind of use amusing terminology to bring some levity to something that's otherwise sad and heartbreaking. Who does my vigor belong to? Who does your vigor belong to? Majesty, splendor. It's called a duty in uh, this verse. Likewise also the wife to her husband. She has a duty to him. And so when this becomes a weapon... When this gets weaponized in uh, different ways, then uh, through uh, withholding and other uh, aspects there, you're just destroying the very purpose that God blessed you with this activity. So the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. It used to be a part of the Anglican wedding vows in the 1600s, uh, you know, with my my worldly goods I thee endowed, with my body I thee worship. <laughs> oh, I haven't heard that in too many weddings recently, but that's that used to be the uh used to be the uh the phraseology there. So the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That gets violated, obviously, in adultery. The wife hasn't given authority for the husband to run around and do this and that. Or the husband hasn't given authority to the woman to run around and do this and that. Then it says, stop depriving one another. It's a term of theft, except by agreement for a time. You may voluntarily choose to set aside the sex life for the spiritual life. Otherwise, it has to be by agreement. It has to be for a short time, as it says. You may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That uh, a dysfunctional sex life is prime ammunition for the devil to make use of. Oh, he can work that all over the place. And souls that have done damage, he can work in that too. He knows all about that. So, your vigor to others. Who does your vigor belong to? Your majesty, your splendor. What is the majesty of a man? All right. It's biblical terminology. I know the world perverts it. The world uh, twists it in different things. And, uh, but it belongs, his vigor belongs to her. And uh, Whatever. They grow old together. If he starts slowing down, that's probably a good thing because she starts slowing down too. (laughs) All right. But she's still the wife of your youth. Okay. Why does the scripture talk about that betrayal of the wife of your youth? Because she's not as young as she used to be and neither are you. All right. And so you grow old together and you're not, uh, you know, you're not trading her in for the younger model. Okay. Because she's the wife of your youth. And by the way, she forgets the husband of her youth. Every one of these harlots here is, is a formerly married young, uh, you know, she's left the husband of her youth as she's engaged in this career of, of uh, harlotry. All right. So vigor is the first giveaway. Your years to the cruel one. Your years to the cruel one. Now what years are these? Sexual death is a function of age, but sometimes those years arrive sooner rather than later. Sexual death is a function of age, but sometimes those years arrive sooner. Genesis 18.12. We talk about sexual death. We talk about length of years. 
We discussed this on Sunday in terms of our X number of days, Y number of days, Z number of days, the days that God assigns in His sovereignty, the way that those years can be lengthened if we walk according to wisdom, if we honor our father and mother. God can lengthen our days on this earth. If we walk according to wisdom, we can have length of days. We've discussed that as uh, in the introduction of Proverbs. It showed up in chapter 1, length of days. We can also shorten our days. God can assign the sin unto death. He can also shorten the years of our vigor, as is described here, to the, to the cruel one. And how cruel is that? Genesis 18, 12. This was the circumstance with Abraham and Sarah. And uh, they could have had Isaac a lot earlier than they did, but they uh, failed in uh, several occasions. They failed in, Abraham failed in chapter 12, failed in chapter 16, failed again in chapter 20. Finally, the birth of Isaac in chapter 21. Could Isaac have come a lot earlier had there not been all that failure? I don't know. Maybe. But now here comes uh, this promise. These are the angels on their way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham invites them in like a typical thoughtless man. Has no idea what she's got prepared for dinner, but he invites a bunch of people over. And uh, says, you know, hurry up and fix something. We've got guests here for dinner. And uh, they said in verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. And now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And then she laughs. And so past childbearing, you know, menopausal, we understand that. She's no longer menstruating, not producing eggs, but she's going to. Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure? It's not just her uh, menstrual cycle and that's uh, an obstacle here. It's the, uh, the, the fact that they've not been engaged in this activity for a period of time. Shall I have pleasure? When's the last time she had pleasure of this nature? After I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? So there is sexual death at advanced age. It's a normal function, but sometimes those years arrive sooner. And uh, we have the discipline and the judgment that's spoken of here when you give your years to the cruel one. The cruel one. That's a title I left off of my uh, angelology with reference to uh, the plan of Satan and uh, a title for the cruel one there. So there's your vigor and there's your years. The third giveaway, your strength to strangers and your hard-earned goods. I combined three and four in a single point. Your strength to strangers and your hard-earned goods to an alien house. And these are the terms, by the way, that are equated with the, the seductress herself. She is a strange woman. She is the, the foreign woman, the alien. And so as a stranger, as an alien house, she is reaping the benefits that should be your wife's. That should be your wife's. All right. You know, dating's expensive. <laughs> I mean, just in terms of uh, all the money and all the money that goes out, you know, whatever, to a dozen women, two dozen women, and then you finally decide to settle down after your party years are over and done with. Well, what happened to all that wealth that could have been laid away, that could have been stored, that could have been in preparation for your role as a husband and father? And I'm not even talking about other things. I'm just talking about promiscuity prior to marriage. Remember, every act of fornication is harlotry. It doesn't have to be on a professional basis to a uh, uh, 
Not just talking about paying for sex. You always pay for sex. One way or the other in the transaction of fornication. All right, Proverbs 5.10. Verse we're looking at today. Proverbs 14.23. 14.23. Talk about the price that's paid. So many things here. Um, as a larger context on this, hard to see where I want to jump in here. Verse 22 says, Will they not go astray who devise evil, but kindness and truth will be to those who devise good? In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. All right, so what am I doing if I'm serving the Lord? Am I leading, am I serving Him in my labor? leading to profit, or am I pursuing the, the cosmos wisdom and the lust of the flesh and everything else, mere talk, where I give, I'm giving lip service to the Lord and acting like I'm holy, um, where does that take me? Where does that take me? And the end result here is poverty. The crown of the wise is their riches. The folly of fools is foolishness. There is uh, quite a contrast here in these... Uh, in this con in this uh, passage, that's Proverbs fourteen twenty three. Look at Psalm one hundred and twenty seven and verse two. Psalm one hundred and twenty seven and verse two. Vain for you to rise up early. This is a good passage for hard work, but putting it in the right context and the right perspective. We want to make sure that our secular life is lined up with God's divine viewpoint for our spiritual life. Psalm 127. This is Solomon himself writing this. So here's a good parallel to the book of Proverbs, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. Everything that you do that God's not on board with is a waste of time. And how many people do you know are crusading for all these other things and asking God to bless what they're doing and He's not even doing it to start with? Unless the Lord builds the house? Why am I? I'm supposed to be a fellow worker with what God's doing. Not doing what I want to do and then ask Him to sanction it or validate it or come on God, get on board with me. What's wrong with you? It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. Now, why is that empty in itself and by itself? What's wrong with starting a workday early and working late and putting in the overtime and and storing up the wealth? And what's wrong with that? Well, the context, again, looking back to verse 1, we see that you're doing it without the Lord, that you're doing it without His blessing, that He is not doing it. So He's not building the house, and you you can pull all the overtime you want to pull, and what are you accomplishing? To eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. This is where we want to, uh, to me this is a marvelous corollary over to the, what we started with this morning in, in 2 Thessalonians. As far as if a man does not work, neither let him eat. So we have the right perspective. We do work. We work because we're serving God. We work but then we recognize that the bread He supplies is, is His faithfulness, it's His grace, it's His provision. We want to rest in what He has supplied. So He gives to His beloved even in His sleep. We want to, if we're obedient to Him, think about it. If we're obedient to Him, that means we want to work when called upon. We want to rest and sleep when called upon. We want to trust Him in all things. We might even, uh, I've I've heard some uh, Christian financial planning groups use this verse to talk about the uh, the idea of residual income and the the benefits of savings and investments and the the, the money you make while you're sleeping because uh, you have stored away and you have laid up and you have um, been wise and biblical in your patterns in any event. This is what God has called us to do. And God has called us, this is not the world's method, okay? The world, you know, would have you, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins and blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> the, uh, 
um, we're not placing our hope in riches. We're placing our hope in God who supplies us richly with all things to enjoy. We have the capacity that we are working in obedience to Him and that what He provides, we don't get prideful. We don't stomp our feet. We don't get lifted up. We don't say, well, I've earned this. I've deserved this. We realize that I've worked in obedience and what He has blessed me with is His grace to bless me with it. Gave me the health to work. Gave me the smarts to work. Gave me the, the job. You know how many people are out of jobs right now? Gave, you know, and I can't just pridefully say, well, I earned this and I deserve this. It's all God's grace that I had the health to get out of bed this morning. Am I still recording? All right, I think we're starting to lose. That's the difference between two clicks and one click on the battery. All right, I got four minutes left. We'll keep the, we'll keep the battery going. All right. So your strength to strangers and your hard-earned goods to an alien house. And there's so much that, that pours into this. It is, it is, there's no reason for it, all right? It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of vigor. It's a waste of strength. What are you really doing when you fornicate? And why? What are you truly doing? Are you serving the Lord? Are you training up the next generation in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Are you serving the purpose of the Lord in your generation? I love that passage in, in Acts 13. David, after he served the purpose of God in his generation, died and was laid with his fathers. Okay, That's the, that's the pattern. Why am I here? I've got work to do. I have a ministry. I have a, uh, there's a purpose that God has for putting me here. Among those other purposes includes my marriage, my children, the next generation. All right, that's a part of it. And I, I need to ponder that. I need to be mindful of that. I need to be aware of what that is. I should not be, I should not be uh, oblivious to that because that's the unstable life that pays no attention to that. I should be mindful of that. Not in pride, of course, but in, uh, in grace. All right. After all the giveaways... The fornicator is left at the end to groan and grieve. When the party's over, what's left? After all the giveaways, the fornicator is left at the end to groan and grieve. After all the giveaways, what's the damage that's been done physically, emotionally, spiritually? What's the damage that's been done to a soul? After all the giveaways, the fornicator is left at the end to groan and grieve. Verses 11 through 14 of Proverbs 5. You know, if you never engage in the activity, then you'll never know the sorrow. You never know the disappointment. I've never officiated at a wedding where virgins uh, got married and began their married life together with all the regrets of the, the people they never slept with before they got married. I've never had a virgin regret their wedding night. But here's the regrets. You groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. The physical consequences to the activities. And uh, you say how I have hated instruction, the soul damage, hatred. What... What, what sparks that hatred when uh, the, 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 the cleaving activity is supposed to be the ultimate expression of physical and spiritual love? What sparks the hatred? Why is it a hate activity when it should be a love activity? It is, we don't call it making hate, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't know. Um... And my heart spurned reproof. There were actually warnings along the way, but the heart spurned it. To the innermost heart is where the effect comes. All right, there's a one and a two for this, but I'm out of time. Uh, so subpoint one and subpoint two we'll, we'll work on next week. So venereal diseases next week. And uh, the other consequences. All right. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace. Father... Uh, I, I can hardly imagine what our children are going to face, what their children are going to face. 
we already live in an upside down, backwards, bizarro universe, Father. It's, I, I just perversions are called normal, and they're they're celebrated and they're they're exalted. And there are churches and denominations and whole segments of Christendom that are right on board with the with the evil, Father. They're calling good evil and evil good, and we are defiling our land. So, Father. I pray that at least a remnant will stand for truth, will stand as a reflection of biblical norms and standards, that, Father, we may uh, be able to uh, pass on your standards to the next generation. Father, be merciful, be faithful. I thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.